Genesis chapter 2, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was to Adam. And in Genesis chapter 5, we read, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. All the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel, 895. He died, and on down the roll it goes. And you come to Enoch, and he would have died also had the Lord not taken him. So through Adam's transgression, death has come to all. Death is God's verdict over mankind, mocking any attempt of finite fallen man um, to deny him. Because death actually strikes terror in the heart of all men, regardless of what they may say. Romans 5 tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one was to come. The first man, Adam, was divinely appointed by God as the head of humanity. Having sinned, he forfeited a righteous standing before God, as did all those he represented. That is, all mankind throughout all time. The consequence, therefore, is death to all. In the same way, He, Almighty God, made Christ the representative head of a new humanity so that his obedience to death as the God-man might mean for them, as it does for us, fallen man, a a place and standing of justification before God. All people worldwide are in the first Adam, by physical birth, while only those by way of the new birth are in the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, we read, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Now the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, came to suffer and die providing life for his elect. 
Now, we noted last time how the Apostles' Creed goes directly from, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, directly to suffered under Pontius Pilate. Devoid of any mention of his miracles, no mention of his teaching. And it's not because the creed thinks that those things are are unimportant, but instead... Uh, The creed here holds to the same basic logic as the scriptures themselves, and that is the concern to get to the central deed of Jesus' life, and that was his atoning work accomplished by way of his death. The atoning work accomplished on the cross. Now, last time we looked at the phrase, um, he suffered um, under Pontius Pilate, uh, there, uh, the creed, again, is reminding us of the concrete historical, uh, historical facts of his suffering. Even to the point here of naming Pilate, you know, there's only two people mentioned besides God, and that's Mary and Pilate. Uh, otherwise, Pontius Pilate would be insignificant. You'd probably never hear of his name. And this is in order to make us understand that, that Pilate didn't act is a private individual in delivering up Christ. But as the presiding governor of that particular region at that particular time. So Jesus, the Christ, God's one and only Son, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, in order to be and hold the office, if you will, of the new Adam the representative of a new humanity. And that was to suffer. He came to suffer, to take our place. So, as the God-man, he was sent here in order to drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, to suffer. And suffer is what is meant by the passion of the Christ. Suffered is a word that carries with it, as J.I. Packer puts it, not only the everyday meaning of bearing pain, but also the older and wider sense of being the object affected by someone else's action, end quote. And then the Latin passus is where we get the noun passion. He came to suffer. So when when Pilate delivered his verdict and sentence on Jesus, uh, he gave a pronouncement at the trial of our Lord. You remember he said, Eke homo. Behold the man. Behold the man. And now the church throughout time has recognized that Pilate unconsciously at that moment is calling people's attention to the presence of the one who is the new man who is the last Adam, right? Which means man, man. Pilate said to them in Matthew 27, uh, then what shall I do with this Jesus who's called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, He took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. 
Okay, so those who framed the creed place Pilate's name there, not, not only to pinpoint the time frame of Christ's death, but also because the scriptures predicted that the Christ would suffer and he would suffer under Gentiles. You know, one of the most striking features of the Old Testament, I think you know, is its types in the prophecies of the coming Messiah, that his death was foreshadowed. When you read like you know, Isaiah 30, uh, 53, Psalm 22, uh, pretty vivid. However, it would seem very contradictory and paradoxical. Images, that is, in those scriptures with regard to a conquering Messiah. Amen? That he would suffer like this. And that, of course, was the case until the mystery was revealed, and the mystery revealed is Christ, and therefore his suffering fulfills and furnishes the key of understanding. And that's why Jesus said to those disciples, Did, you know, do not the scriptures say that the Christ must suffer and die? And Jesus told his own disciples time and time again that he must be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Here now, the next biblical record emphasized in the Apostles' Creed is the means of his death. And that is crucifixion. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. Reminding us and in, in pointing us to the, the agonizing, humiliating, and embarrassing kind of death that Christ suffered. The Roman cross was, was an instrument of punishment for the worst of criminals in this day. It was for outcasts, Represented for the worst kinds of punishment that the, that the greatest, greatest judicial system in the world at that time could possibly mete out. Crucifixion. And the word excruciating actually comes from crucifixion, from out of the cross. It was conceived and implemented by the Persians about 300 B.C. Mastered by the Romans in 100 B.C. or so. Um, historical documents have been discovered trying to explain what took place when a criminal was executed on a Roman cross. And it says the victim's legs were made to bend at 45 degrees, causing severe cramping and fatigue, forcing the victim to move up and down the cross a distance of about 12 inches in order to, to gain a breath. There was the dislocation of wrists, elbows, and shoulders, delirium, often set in. Physiological reflexes required deeper breaths where eventually the body would become starved of oxygen with greater amounts of carbon dioxide building up in the blood. Fluctuations in blood pressure, dehydration, would eventually lead to heart and lung failure. So imagine that. The process of crucifixion and the adverse pain due to it became known as excruciating pain from out of the cross. The kind of death that meant uh, to be very tortured, meant to be torturous by the Roman Empire. 
It was actually against the law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was so bad that a Roman statesman by the name of Cicero said this. And I quote, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. End quote. It was painful. It was shameful. And that is precisely the death that Jesus, the Christ, experienced. And the Jews, as you know, regarded anyone who was crucified to be under the curse of God. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So by manipulating the authorities, they desperately wanted Jesus to be crucified so that they could declare that he is not the Messiah. He bears the curse of God. He cannot, therefore, possibly be the son of the living God. For the one who's under judgment is cursed by God. So the Jews' crucifixion, or to them, and him and turning him over as they did, uh, in their mind was was a sign of being cast out and cast off. And that's the picture. And that's precisely what God chose for His Son to be cast off, to be cast out, in order that you and I could be gathered in. That was the whole point ordained by God in providential timing through the hands of wicked men. And this, that's what we read in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men. And he goes on to say that God raised him up. This is the Lord's doing. Amen? Man did this providentially. God ordained this. This is the death Jesus chose. And this death, crucifixion, was the focal point of his life. From the time of his birth, throughout his upbringing, the, the, the shadow of the cross loomed over him. All the way through, from the beginning of his public ministry, he deliberately and, and resolutely moved towards it. He knew what his mission was, amen? Every move leaving, leading up to his crucifixion was according to his hand and his timing. You remember what he said to Judas once Satan entered him? What did he do? He commanded him, what you do, what? Do quickly. That was a divine command that had to be carried out because Jesus had to be crucified at a particular hour. They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They could not do so for his hour had not yet. God is in control. God's always been in control. And he was in control of the timing of his son's crucifixion. Scripture tells us that he, Jesus, set his face toward Jerusalem. Eventually, he would teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, and he must be crucified. 
Matthew 16, I think you remember, Caesarea Philippi, the scene. The Lord is on retreat with his disciples, asking them, you know, who do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And it was at that point that Jesus started to reveal to his disciples that he must be delivered into the hands of man, crucified, and die. And Peter took him aside in Matthew 16 and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, so, because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. The crucifixion, his death, the means of his death, were the things of God. That's why the last Adam came. Over one-third of the words of the Gospels are given to the death of Jesus Christ. So as, as significant as his birth was and is, along with his life, his teaching, and his preaching... It's his death that is the apex of his mission, the crucifixion. So the the cross, therefore, uh, is is significant not only for us, uh, but also for God himself, who ordained this means of death of his only son. He ordained it. He orchestrated all events leading up to it and through it. History moved towards it in, in, in order to fulfill it. From the promise of Genesis 3.15 on, everything moved towards it. It moves at a certain pace, unveiling time and time again God's purposes in the crucifixion of his son outside the gates of Jerusalem. And scripture also tells us that God most clearly and fully expresses his glory through the cross. So on the cross... He was looked upon by the Father as the one who was in rebellion. He was looked on by the Father as the one who not only sinned, but was sin itself. He was the one totally depraved. That's how the Father looked at him. He's the one deserving judgment is how the Father looked upon him. Because it was there he was judged in our place. Amen? So the cross is the instrument of that punishment. The instrument of God's wrath against sin and the sinner. And the sinner was poured out upon the last Adam on a Roman cross. So the physical suffering on the cross, that's quite obvious, amen? But more than the physical suffering was the spiritual suffering he endured while he was hanging there for six hours. And three hours of it in darkness, which reveals for us again the the, the judgment of God, his wrath. So on the cross, it was there that Jesus had to bear God's ban. It was there that he was consumed with the anathema of God, the curse of God. Of God, the fullness of God's wrath poured out. So he had to be treated as a sinner. You remember how Paul puts it? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. In him. So it was there on the cross that he sealed our pardon. It was there that propitiation was made. The wrath of God was appeased, quenched, as Jesus hung on the cross. Blotting out our sins from his sight. Reconciling us to God by way of punishment on the cross. Displacing wrath. Making peace with God through Jesus Christ. So through that means of forsakenness, we as his redeemed will never be forsaken. Because we're in him. We were on the cross there with him. We were crucified with Christ as his elect. So the creed here presses us to meditate on that reality. We have to realize what the cross was. We have to realize what the cross cost him. And to realize what the the cross accomplished that's what we do when we come to the table today. Okay, when we remember that, we're not just remembering that he was crucified. We're remembering what he accomplished by way of the crucifixion. Central to the gospel, beloved, is the cross. There's no gospel without the cross. The cross is essential to the good news. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, this is the great apostle Paul, did not, <clears throat> did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As such, beloved, the cross is of first importance and it is the very symbol of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Look, anyone seeking human wisdom in order to be right with God This is folly. This is foolishness. A cross, a crucified Savior, that he's the only way, that he's the truth, that he's the life. You're telling me that that's the only way God saves people? That's right. That's why it's a stumbling block. That's why it is folly to those that are perishing. There is no Christianity without a cross, though people try. So this vision here of a cross is not the vision of power to the, to the lost world. This scandalous event is a, is a picture of weakness. Amen? You know, multitudes of people believe themselves to be good people. And they believe, because in their mind, okay, that they're good enough to enter the presence of God. Therefore, when they die... They believe they'll be justified by death alone. You just die, that's how you get to heaven. That's how the world thinks. And a cross and faith and trust in one who died on a cross is foolishness. That's absolute nonsense. Sinclair Ferguson writes, thinking that I deserve heaven 
is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. But, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. We've been revealed this truth by the supernatural power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So those who are called according to God's grace realize that they cannot glory in themselves. Amen? There's nobody here today, I surely hope, that thinks they can glory in themselves. We glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, that's the power of salvation. Paul said in Galatians 6, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness, there's no atonement, there's no redemption, there's no salvation, there's no imputed righteousness, there's no Christianity, there is no hope. There's no hope outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ by way of the cross. Jesus himself applied that Old Testament type of the brazen serpent in the wilderness, killing the Israelites. What did he say? He attributed that as something to look at, pointing forward to his own death. He said in John 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That doesn't mean to lift up the name of Jesus. It means he must be lifted up on a Roman cross. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's the power of God. So it's from there that he exercises his healing power of those dying in sin, those bitten, if you will, by the brazen serpent. The, give, the giving up of Isaac by Abraham. There's another type. Offering up his only son. That prefigured the unspeakable gift of the father who spared not his own son. Amen? He spared not his own son. His son was offered up on a pile of wood. The Paschal Lamb. God declared not a bone of the lamb shall be broken. Prefiguring Christ, whose legs were not broken, as were the others on that Roman cross. To speed up death, you would break their legs so they couldn't lift themselves up to take a breath. When they came to Jesus, they were sure he was dead. Therefore, the scriptures were fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Amen? The two thieves... Both of them, they broke their legs, but not the Paschal Lamb, not this Lamb, not the Lamb of God, the one the Paschal Lamb pointed forward to. Now, the cross had in the first century, as it does to this day, enemies, enemies of the cross. Paul said in Philippians 3, for many, now listen to this, many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. The cross of Christ. Their end, what is it? Destruction. Anyone who preaches a Christ without a cross, 
their end is destruction. Christianity without crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, is the road to destruction. Their gods their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on what kind of things? Earthly things. Man's things. Man's way of thinking. You know, the, the cross has enemies of those who call themselves Christians. Seminaries are filled with men like this. The cross is actually emptied of its power within the walls of buildings like this that call themselves churches. You know why? Because in those walls, within those walls, they deny the necessity of penal substitution. They deny it. They refuse to acknowledge God's wrath and his anger against sin and the sinner. And they say this, and I quote, If God required the suffering and sacrifice of his son, it is then the sign of divine cosmic child abuse. Who could accept a faith like that? Who could possibly accept a God like that? My friends, they are enemies of the cross. Make no mistake. They deny that Christ's death had to take place. And they proclaim a cross. But they proclaim a cross that is a picture of suffering love. That's all it is, suffering love. Committed martyrdom that is not absolutely necessary Penal atonement, that is. Penal substitution. But it's simply an example for good people to follow, right? If you're a good person and you're going to follow the Judeo-Christian philosophy of life. That's a different gospel, beloved. It's another gospel. They might wear a cross around their neck, but they're enemies of the cross, Deny it is absolutely necessary. You're an enemy of the cross. Matthew 27, 22, Pilate said to them, What should I do with this Jesus who's called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only Son, our Lord Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. In John 19, verses 16 to 42, we see there in verses 16 to 30 the historical account of Christ's crucifixion. In verses 31 to uh, 37, we see the record of his death. And then in verses 38 to 42, we see the record of his burial. Okay, So let me just, since we're running out of time. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was the high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw this has, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is sure, it's true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. John was there. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they look upon him whom they have pierced. Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him his permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Beloved, he died a literal death. He died. Why is that important? Because the Bible says the wage of sin is death. He had to die. No swoon theory here. That Jesus was in some coma. And then the coolness and dampness of the tomb brought him out of the coma. He died. Literally. So it was absolutely necessary that he taste death in every way in order to pay the wages of sin. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness. Without the cross, there is no salvation. With the cross, there had to be death. There had to be punishment. Any attempt to deny the fullness of death undermines once, undermines once again the gospel. He had to face death and he had to defeat death, which he did. Amen. That's why we're here today. 2,000 years later, he conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered the grave. And he removed the sting of death, having died. Death of the sinner, having never sinned. Bearing the unmitigated force of God's wrath upon the cross. So the creed confesses that Jesus knows what real death is like. As the incarnate Son of God, come down from heaven, becoming a man, experienced every pressure Every temptation, he experienced death. He experienced what death is like and therefore knows how to lead you and I not only through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, not only to the threshold of our own death, but through the door. That is how we will never taste death. 
The body will see death. We'll never taste death. We'll enter immediately into glory. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So contrary to to heretical belief that Jesus wasn't really human and therefore he didn't truly die, the creed presses home once again what Scripture does declare, and that is Jesus, the Son of Man, died. Crucified, dead, and here buried. Just as we read in John's Gospel. So this is the creed's way of of continuing to, to emphasize and confirm the totality of the Lord's death. He had a real body, and that real body really died. Contrary to all kinds of first century rumors. And then there's this Joseph, a wealthy man, and he had become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, also, who was a Pharisee. You remember the account between he and Jesus in John 3? was also, became, obviously, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Joseph was a follower in secret until this day. When he very bravely went to Pilate and asked permission, Kind sir, may I have the body of Jesus? He gives him permission. They take him down. They wrap him up, as was the custom and buried him in a rich man's tomb, as the scriptures foretold. Amen? So there we have it. The sinless Son of God was crucified, dead, buried. We're going to confess it together today before we come to the table. Amen? This is what we believe. This is what we must believe. Scripture says that for his clothing... They cast lots, as prophecy foretold. His hands and feet pierced, as the scriptures foretold. They gave him sour wine to drink, as the scriptures foretold. Not a bone of him was broken, fulfilling once again the living scriptures. In crucifixion, he was numbered with the transgressors, as the scriptures foretold. Associated there with the accursed, with the criminals, and buried in a rich man's tomb, as the scriptures foretold. And every person who's united to him by faith will also, like him, come out of the the grave, your body will, as the scriptures declare. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and and his only Son, our Lord,